Hi, I'm Bruce Webb. You're listening to Push to Talks Helicopter Safety Enhancement Miniseries. In this collaboration with the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team, we're talking about four different safety enhancements over four consecutive weeks. Joining me is Chris Bauer, a former military aviator and co-chair of the USHST. In this second episode, Chris and I will take a look at HSE 22A, How to Manage Risk During Flight. For more information and for a full list of helicopter safety enhancements, please visit ushst.org forward slash h dash se. So here we are at episode two of our special series discussing the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team's HSEs. Before we began this process, Chris and I looked at the different HSEs. There are many, but we chose four. Uh, the one we chose to discuss today is HSE 22A. It is the detection and management of risk level changes during flight by pilots and non-flying crew. I got to confess, Bruce, I'm really not good at math. So here we are on episode two, and we got another two in there, 22A. I don't know what the A actually stands for. Me either. I don't know why it says A. What? There's a reason. But what's important is that if you're hearing us, you've tuned into this because you want to learn more about it. Absolutely. You know, we're going to talk about 22A, but what I find interesting is that it talks about risk level changes during flight. I'm not sure that's encompassing enough. Is it only flight where risk levels change? And how do we, how about before the flight or after the flight? Or, I mean, certainly during the flight, we have to manage that, but that's not the only time risk changes. No, you're perceptive in that regard. Risk levels are something that you're going to encounter before, during, and after the flight. You might say, well, what do you mean after the flight? Earlier, we were talking about somebody does something to an aircraft and then they go home. And then tomorrow you get in the aircraft and you fly it and something goes wrong. Maybe you had a bird strike. Oh, I don't think I actually hit the bird. Well, did you do a really good thorough post-flight on the aircraft? Oh, look at this. There's evidence of some some bird feathers, some blood and guts, something. Mm -hmm. Did you ride it up? Did somebody post? So post-flight, what do you do when you post-flight? Do you refuel the aircraft before you put it in the hangar or do you not refuel it? Mm -hmm. A lot of things from a human factor standpoint is we try to do things with an aircraft to put it back in the state that the next pilot will fly it safely. So they won't. In other words, if you're going to ground the aircraft, don't ground it a different way. Ground it in a way that, oh, I put an extra cable that I didn't tell anybody about. Or I forgot to set the rotor brake. And now the rotor is going to move and the, the pilot, well, our policy is we keep the rotor brakes set. When I used to fly recips, I once forgot and left the magnetos on. And the next pilot came out and said, hey, who flew this aircraft last? Chris, you're supposed to turn the, why don't you turn these off? Because mm -hmm. I screwed up. Right. So, you know, the, the, the risk is managed before you go fly, during the flight, and when you get back Absolutely. from the flight. It's funny you bring up pre-flighting or post-flighting. You know, there's a couple of rules. I think we all develop rules, things that I abide by. Uh, as an example, I never have left a ship at an airport until it was fueled up, post-flighted, and ready for the next day. Never. Because what if the next morning the fuel truck's broken? Or what if 
some, you know, a guy comes in in a Chinook and takes all the fuel, you know, consumes all the fuel. You know, back to the post-flighting, I think a post-flight should be done extremely thoroughly because that's when I want to find if I have a problem. Let's imagine I have a hydraulic filter pending bypass or a leak or a, I don't want to call up, you know, dispatch the next morning and say I found it. I want to tell them at five o'clock the night before so we can get it fixed. And I do think that is part of managing risk. And as things change, again, when you land and you think the aircraft's perfectly airworthy, right? You land, you get out. But it's not until you've thoroughly conducted a post-flight, put it to bed, so to speak, that I can feel comfortable that I've done all I can to manage risk for the next day for myself or even for you. So when you show up at the aircraft or the next pilot shows up at the aircraft and they're wanting to go flying, you want to give them the aircraft that you got only better. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of picky about that too. That means like no trash left inside. Um, if you got touch screens, I've, you know, get yourself a nice little uh, microfiber and clean all the fingerprints off of it. Or I used to call it finger cheese, you know, in fact, I had a boss when I flew 135 in uh, Teterboro, uh, one of the best bosses I ever had in aviation. And he had this thing about windshields and finger cheese. And after you flew the aircraft, you would always clean the windshields and you would do it properly. And then you'd carry this little paintbrush. And I had one in my bag forever. And that's the brush. We used to call it avionics dust, finger cheese, mm-hmm. whatever. Absolutely. Keep Off up the with bottom it. bezel of all those displays. Keep, keep that stuff out of there. Right. Don't eat and drink. And, and, and stuff over the avionics and spill. I, on the airline side, I can't tell you there's been just so many aircraft that have diverted because somebody spilled coffee or some liquid into the avionics, caused it to short out, and now you got an in-flight emergency. Well, I think it goes back to our the first podcast we did when we talked about professionalism. You know, I, yeah, I take great pride in leaving the aircraft to the next person in better condition than I found it, or if I can't leave it in better condition, I've annotated in the logbook what the discrepancies are, and they've either been cleared through an MEL or they've been cleared by maintenance through repair or for you know some maintenance action. I remember when I flew medical helicopters, one of the nurses one day said, how come the helicopters only broke when you first come to work? And I thought, well, what does she mean? And she was being observant. But what she meant was, when I come on duty, I pre-flighted that aircraft like I was going to buy it. So when I found discrepancies, I'd write them up or I'd get maintenance to come look at the ship to, to, to rectify the situation. Because it was always my fear that I would miss something and then you would find it. And then, and then it would be your fault. Yes, it would. Yeah. Right. And, and not, so, not so much that I would be embarrassed because I can accept embarrassment, but what if it really did cause you a problem? You know, you depart in the aircraft, you you take it to some scene, you shut down, you can't start back up because I missed something. So maybe a way to look at this is the management of the risk actually starts at the post-flight yeah. backwards because that's where you're going to pick it up and the other pilot's going to pick it up next. And you want to have that level playing field of what the expectation is for the aircraft. And if you're sharing an aircraft and it's with different pilots and an organization, maybe you have or you don't have a policy you could think about, well, what's our culture? Mm-hmm. What's the expectation? And then when you start on the, on the pre-flight side of this, you know, where does your, where does your pre-flight 
risk management start? Does it start the night before? What time did you go to bed? Well, what? I do think it has to do with all of that, right? You, How do you arrive at work? You know, do you arrive hurried and rushed and all disheveled and, or do you arrive cool, calm and collected? As much as I can, I try to always pre-flight in a well-lit area. Now, sometimes that's not possible. Maybe the aircraft is out on a ramp and it's dark. But again, stack the deck in your favor. And when we look at managing risk, there are a lot of things. Again, this HSC specifically talks about during flight. But as we've discussed, it's, it really starts far before that. But even in flight, let's, let's, let's kind of jump ahead now. Let's assume that we've done a good post-flight. Let's assume we've done a good pre-flight and the ship is airworthy. We've done a good job of planning. We, we believe we know that what the weather is going to be. We believe we know the route of flight. You know, we, we have done what a professional would do, but things change. Things right. change. So we plan our flight today. And let's say we're flying over mountainous terrain, which, depending on what kind of helicopter you're in, can be not too big of a deal or it could be a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Or there's weather in the mountainous terrain. You... You cross one ridge line, things are looking okay. You're coming up on the next ridge line, and um, you, you see that you do have some kind of obscuration in front of you. But well, I'm, I'm going to keep going, and then you realize, well, I can't, I can't cross anymore. Now what? Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to manage that. So I'm going to have to divert or or deviate one or the other. Do I have enough fuel if I deviate to get to my destination, or now do I need to look at a place I can go? Do they have jet fuel or do they have 100 low lead? Well, you know, I didn't check that before I left. I don't know if – is it self-serve? Is the, any place with self-serve, I'd always call them mm-hmm. and say, hey, is the, is the, pump, is the pump working? Sure. Is there fuel in it? You'd be surprised. And then you get, you know, the story like, well, no, not right now. Well, then that's not a viable option for me. So when you're when you're flying, um, you have all these things that you got to mitigate, and then it, it affects other parts of the flight. Other And then do you need to let people know if you're deviating, especially if you're VFR and maybe you're not on a flight plan? And you may have to deviate to a place that doesn't have the same accoutrements that you desire for your passengers. You may have some VIPs on board and they don't really want to go to Butte, Montana. You know, they want to go there, you know, your flight plan to LA and they expect to get out at LAX. I'm just being silly here, but, you know, they may not have the nicest FBO. Or they may not have restaurants of the quality or hotels of the quality that people expect. Or I mean, there's a lot of things that go into decision-making. I remember I came out of Cleveland one time. I was flying a 145. This is a long time ago. I was coming out of Cleveland, IFR, and I was going to Indianapolis. So that's a, not, a, not a difficult flight, not a long flight. And for whatever reason, and this was my error, and I'm not a huge sports fan, but it was Super Bowl Sunday in Indianapolis. So the Super Bowl was in Indy. I'm flying from Cleveland. I don't know where I was going ultimately. Maybe Dallas. I don't know. But I was going to overnight in Indianapolis. So uh, normally I always call ahead and speak to the FBO, but I'm very familiar with Indianapolis, so I didn't. And I remember I called the lady up on the radio and I said, hey, you know, I'll be there in like 45 minutes. You know, could you make me a hotel reservation? And she laughed. I'm like, what's so funny? She says, it's Super Bowl weekend. Like, oh, now, fortunately, it was just me and a, a, another person. So I just amended my destination to Bloomington, Indiana, 
I flew to Bloomington, spent the night in Bloomington. Point being, if I really had to be in Indianapolis, I did a poor job of planning. I didn't take everything into consideration. It didn't dawn on me the Super Bowl was there. Now, for a lot of people, that would have been clear and, uh, you know, they would never make that error. But for me, it was an easy error to make. You know, in flight, weather will force us to go places we don't necessarily want to go. Air traffic. Let's say all of a sudden, um, president's coming to town. That airspace isn't available to you anymore. You're going to need to go around. And do you have enough fuel to go around? Or um, does it put you offshore? Do you have the equipment to go offshore? Um, So these are all the risks that you're trying to mitigate while you're operating the flight. Sometimes you have to turn around and go back where you started because that's the least worst option of not pressing ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like freezing fog or, or some type of icing that wasn't forecast. It wasn't something that you had anticipated, but now you're encountering it. So what do I do? Can I turn around and go back or am I better off just landing right here, right now, because I'm starting to get some vibrations. There's so many things and it's, it's a constant being the captain of the aircraft, being responsible. It takes a lot of effort. And what I mean is it's not only the aircraft, the weather, the environment, it's your passengers. We had a, a, a very good person, not really a customer. We flew them a lot here. He was a big auto dealer. I'll just leave it at that. But his son was a person in a fully motorized wheelchair. I mean, not only not ambulatory. I don't know that I could say he was quadriplegic, but he certainly had no motor function. You know, as things change, people in his condition do change how I perceive the risk of continuing on. You know, you and I might say, you know, I can continue on. I can divert to this other airport. But if it doesn't have the facilities that this passenger needs, then that's not an acceptable place to go. You know, so maybe I do have to go back to where I came from. Or it is risk level changes for a lot of different reasons. And I think that's why it's difficult for us as a community of aviators to try to grasp and get our arms around how we help people make better decisions is because every situation is unique. Are you in an IFR capable helicopter? Are you comfortable IFR? Are you certified IFR? Yeah. When you say comfortable, I interpret that to be our, what's your recency of experience? Absolutely. How often do you fly IFR once a year in training? Do you fly IFR once a month, uh, once a week? And when I say IFR, there's synthetic vision time, there's, you know, restricted vision, or there's, you know, hard IMC. What I've, you know, talked to people with in industry is if um, you've never actually flown IFR at night in the weather, IMC, getting bounced around, the, the first time you're doing it is, is you, you want it to be in a controlled environment with another experienced safety pilot with you, not on your own. It's all you know, looking at, again, what the risk is and then the best way to mitigate it. Right. So you don't scare yourself so bad that you'll come back and you're like, you know what? I'm never flying again. Not, I'm not going IFR. I didn't like it. I was scared. It was the sensations I had not experienced before and I didn't feel comfortable. That So now I got to understand that risk and how am I going to go out there and maybe get comfortable with it a little bit at a time, kind of like swimming. Right. First you go out in the water and get wet. Well, that's a new sensation. Mm Mm-hmm. So go out and 
fly IFR in some smooth weather, um, you know, where you're looking at stratiform clouds, mm -hmm. where you're getting real IFR time, but the aircraft's not bouncing up down all over the place. Right, right. And and how do you mitigate convective activity and how do you mitigate icing? How do you look for icing? How do you know where it it, it could be or it, it may right. not? Right, yeah, you can take off and, and believe that there is no, you know, threat of icing or no serious threat. And then someone files a PIREP that says there's, you know, moderate ice at your flight level. Ugh, that's not so good if you're not flying a ship that's certified into known moderate ice. You know, and some there's some very, and again, I, I don't want to give the perception to the audience, we're dancing around this, we're not, we're talking, I think, I hope that what we're communicating is, this is a very nuanced issue, and so... Eventually, or we're gonna we're gonna move ahead. Eventually, we're gonna talk about decision making triggers. We used to call them decision making points, but things that that cause us to make decisions. You know, whether we have to slow down, make turns, what have you. But there are more, as we're discussing now, more nuanced things. Let's imagine you're flying a medical patient and you're going out to pick up a patient. And I'm just gonna make this absurd to fit my purpose, but let's say the person has been hyperthermic, you know, they've been exposed to very high temperatures. So, you know, their body temperature is very high, what have you. And you're going to fly them back to a level one trauma center, but your air conditioner fails on the aircraft on the way out. Does that affect your decision? Does that affect, you know, we look at risk. It's not just the risk to you and your aircraft in this condition. Now it would be the risk. What's the purpose of the flight? If the purpose is to move a patient, but now you can't keep the patient in a safe environment, temperature-wise. And for all you medical people, you can send me all the e emails correcting me. But I've refused an aircraft because the heating system didn't work. And we're going to fly an air that's minus 25 degrees centigrade, colder. I'm only, what am I going to do? At some point, people are going to become hypothermic. Right. So even though it may pressurize, the if it doesn't provide any heat, Mm -hmm. Well, then that becomes a safety of flight issue because mm -hmm. I'm probably going to wind up having to divert when people become hypothermic mm -hmm. and now I've injured people. Right. So you get out in front of it. Absolutely. The risk was not acceptable in that case. Right. It's, it's easy to step back and look at some of the more benign or the more routine things. Weather uh, comes to mind initially, of course. How do we manage that? How do we first acquire the information to tell us the risk has changed? You know, back when you and I learned to fly in the 20th century. You know, there wasn't much information in the cockpit. For me, I didn't, I could call flight watch and get information, but the aircraft were pretty basic. Today, we've got lots of ways. Most of us have lots of ways to get good information into the aircraft. But that's a risk too. So let me ask you a question to the audience, not to you, Bruce, but um, I know a lot of us, we all fly with an EFB. We have an iPad. How many of you have gotten in the aircraft, you're flying along, and all of a sudden you get that dreaded message that pops up that said, uh, iPad's too hot and I'm going to shut down. Now you don't have anything. So if that was your sole source and you were relying on that for all the data that you need to operate that flight, what do you do? Mm -hmm. How do you manage that risk? So you have to have a backup plan always. You know, you made me think when you said um, the iPad and – and that overheat message. And it was you, I believe it was you were, was, were telling me, I've noticed on airplanes now, airliners, that during the passenger briefing now, the flight attendants say, if you lose your phone in the seats, 
notify them. Don't be adjusting your seat. Was it you that was telling yes, me Yes, you're yeah. going to go with the burn battery. Yes. So why is that? If you have a device with a lithium battery in it, and you've ever seen a lithium battery catch on fire, it burns hotter than the sun. And we're all sitting in something that's aluminum, plastic. It's not fireproof. When this battery goes into, say, a seat, and the seat is mechanical and it moves and it crushes the case of the phone or the tablet, it now exposes the battery in a way that and if that battery is compromised, the integrity of it, it's going to start a fire. So what, what I do on my aircraft is I have a certified burn bag because I've got a tablet, I've got um, a backup I, on the phone, I've got more Mm -hmm. data that I can access in flight. Mm -hmm. I've got a computer. It's got a lithium battery in it. Mm -hmm. There may be other lithium batteries on your aircraft that you haven't even thought about. Your passengers bring Maybe you've got a on. GoPro. Sure. Maybe they, they've they got um, some type of a GPS device that's small and, you know, they're using it to track their, their flight or their performance. So you've got these lithium batteries, and if they go up, how quickly are you going to be able to deal with it? And how would you be able to touch this? Burning hot as the sun battery? Right. Of course not. Well, and not use your hands again. So it, you get you get one of these bags, and you get it with a glove. It comes with a glove, and that allows you to pick up this burning battery pack and throw it in the burn bag, and you, you close it, and it can burn inside that bag, and the bag's going to contain it mm -hmm. until you get the aircraft right. on the ground right. and get that thing out of the aircraft. Right. And it wasn't until just now that this conversation made me think about that because it is – detecting and managing risk that changes in flight before flight though you understand the threat you place this in your ship so that you can manage something that may not be frequent but if it does happen it can be devastating so you're carrying a bag to be able to isolate this threat this burning object for people flying medical helicopters there's lots of battery packs. There's lots of, I mean, this is a threat that didn't exist 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Or if, if, if it did, I was unaware of it. No, it, it's on the same level as the fire extinguisher. You don't hope you'll ever need to use it. But if you did have a fire in flight, um, you're hoping that, that there's a good reason why it's there and it's accessible in the cockpit that I could put the fire out and get the aircraft on the ground. And that's something else that, you know, along with the risk is when you've got a fire or an emergency, get the aircraft on the ground. Don't delay, don't, well, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to declare an emergency or uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll go back. Where's the closest airport? Maybe it's not, it's not the, the best decision. You've looked at, at some uh, catastrophic fires. One of them was a Swiss Air 111. So you, you don't have to be an airline pilot to learn from airline disasters. And, and this was. So Swiss Air 111, uh, they wound up having a fire that came from the entertainment system in the back. So, see, if it was a galley oven, well, maybe that sounds more sure. immediate than, sure. oh, the entertainment system's malfunctioning. Well, it caused a fire. And the pilots were running their checklist. And instead of um, going straight to Halifax and landing, they entered a holding pattern to jettison and dump fuel to get down to the appropriate landing weight because they didn't want to land overweight. Because they didn't want to damage the aircraft. There you go. What we were talking about in our uh, previous discussion. Yes. What you got to think about is the risk. What is my risk here? My risk is I lose control of the aircraft 
because it, it, it's engulfed in flames. Or I can't breathe because everything is combusting in the aircraft and I, I can't breathe mm-hmm. because I'm not getting any air. Um, you won't want to get to that point. Now you're really in an undesired aircraft state. What you want to do is recognize the threat. The threat is that I, I may, may have a fire. Is that strong enough for you? May? Let's get it on the ground. Right. And then we'll troubleshoot right. it troubleshoot from there. Then. Again, it goes back to human nature, but it's much better to be on the ground sorting out your issue than trying to sort it out in flight. And even if you're capable of sorting it out in flight, let's just imagine, I don't recommend this, but let's just imagine you're capable of doing that. What if while you're doing that, you have a bird strike? Well, now you've got a, you've compounded your problem. People say, yeah, Bruce, but you can't worry about all those eventualities. Yes, but we're talking about how to detect and manage risk as things change. I'll go one further. What happens when you have something like this? Where does your attention go? Is it out in front of the aircraft in the flight path? Nope. Or is it inside the aircraft where you're either looking at a checklist or you're looking about what you're going to do? And, and, and that's just the nature of our business. You, you're going to have to divert some of your attention to doing that. If you've got an augmented crew where you have another pilot, well, one pilot could be inside, one pilot could be outside. If you're a single pilot, do you have an autopilot? You're talking about bird strike. I'm thinking about midair or hitting some other object because you're not watching where the aircraft's going because you're consumed with smoke and fumes in the cockpit or well, cascading failures of things, you know, because the entertainment system doesn't work. Well, yeah, well, just coincidentally, the box that runs the automatic flight control system resides near there. So then your AFCS fails and then, oh my gosh, well, your pressurization fails. Now. I mean, there can be cascading failures that start in a very benign way. Again, you know, I think as we look at detection and management of risk level changes, what I garner from what we're talking about. And for audience members, Chris and I have never discussed this in this kind of an environment. So uh, this is our first discussion about this. But it dawns on me that most of what we've talked about is management of it. And the management isn't in the moment. The management is planning for the potential. It's contemplating what can go wrong and having a rough idea of what you would do. You know, if you're flying along and you have a fire, even if it seems like minor, what's someone going to say to you? Hey, Chris, you're flying this plane. I don't care if it's a Robinson R-22 or a 777. You have a known fire. It's, it's an electrical fire. And you make a precautionary landing. Is anyone going to really stand before you and say, that was the wrong thing to do? I don't think so. Even if they did, Who I'd laugh at them. That's right. And say, this is an insane conversation. You can't penalize somebody for being precautious, for being deliberate, methodical, and saying, hey, this thing isn't safe to fly. I'm going to put it on the ground and figure out why it's not safe to fly. If I'm wrong, put some more fuel on me and send me on my way. Exactly. But I had a main gearbox fire in the Dolphin during a night water hoist offshore. We finished the hoist, and we landed at the hospital with the patient that was coming off a fishing boat. And what had happened was the rotor brake was dragging on the disc, you know, that on mm-hmm. the, the, the puck of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, during flight, turned that rotor brake into like an oven, and it caught on fire. It started burning some of the material in the forward section where all your hydraulic lines mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. and it set off the detector for the main gearbox. Right. 
yet we were given no other secondary indications, but we had a fire. In hindsight, I don't know what we would have done differently because we already had somebody on the hoist coming off the boat. Sure, right. um, To to not finish the hoisting evolution, and then from there, like I said, we went straight to the hospital. Maybe the thing would have been to land it on the beach. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But maybe you don't know. Oftentimes, with one, you may not get a secondary indication to validate. Mm -hmm. I in fact have a fire. Absolutely, and you know rotor brakes. Yeah, they've. Uh, they can cause fires. There's no question. Those pucks can get very, very hot. And, you know, it's a remarkable how warm things get. Of course, that shaft's turning at probably 6,000 RPM, RPM, that input pinion. I think the key for me anyway, as I sit here watching you and listening to you talk, is it really, it's about having a plan before you need the plan. And I said earlier, we were going to talk about in-route decision-making triggers, or we used to call them in-route decision-making points which I think everyone should have in their mind these triggers. You know, if you're flying and you, let's just imagine you're playing to fly at 120 knots, but because of visibility or obscuration, you keep slowing down and you've slowed down to 90 knots, maybe that's your trigger. If you get to 90 knots, you stop flying. You find a place to park. Or maybe it's if you make more than, you know, three heading changes to avoid contact with, the clouds or with the surface because you're so low. But all that's pre-planned, isn't it? You don't make your in-route decision-making triggers in flight because if you do, they're just a sliding scale. You have to do that prior to going, just like you need to have a plan prior to going to handle a lot of things that could happen. Many of them are covered in a checklist, right? We do have procedures for things in checklists, which will cover risks that change in flight. But many of them aren't. The ones that tend to be fatal, unfortunately, are not. Uh, weather being key amongst them. You fly often in a 66. Of course, that's a VFR aircraft. What What are your personal minimums? Or how do you handle in-route decision-making triggers in, a, in your 66? As you noted, the 66 is a VFR aircraft. So you have to maintain VMC. That's my benchmark. If I can't maintain VMC... It's just a day that it's not meant for that aircraft to go flying. I've flown a lot of different aircraft in my time. And some aircraft, while they may be certified for different things, say it's certified for day-night IFR, but look at what the weather is. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I got no problem. I could fly to, I got no problem flying to minimums. Well, I do. Um, I'll be brutally honest with you. My minimums are probably a lot higher than that, particularly if I'm solo, like single pilot IFR. And it's at night and I'm tired because I've been working or flying all day. Do I really need to go down to 200 and a half to prove to the world that, oh, yeah, I could do that. No problem. I, I might like a mile of visibility, Bruce, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> instead of half a mile. Sure. Um, and and what what's my fuel situation when I get there? Do I have enough fuel to complete an approach? How long can I hold for before I have to go to my alternate? What's the alternate weather doing? And is the alternate in a place that has a control tower? So here's something you can ask yourself. If you go in someplace and you shoot an approach and you do not break out, is your plan to do what? Hold and try it again? And and you may not have a choice. Let's say you're going to an island destination, which for the scope of this conversation is probably remote. In other words, you got enough holding fuel because you're not going to go anywhere Mm -hmm. else because you can't. Sure. Like when I flew off the, the cutter. Right, I'm not going anywhere. I couldn't make land, right. so the, the, the only gas your I only had island. was to find the cutter 
And if I couldn't land on the cutter because it was out of limits, we would hover in flight refuel with the cutter to keep us with the engines turning and the rotor spinning until the ship came within limits and we could land on it. Mm-hmm. But in a helicopter, if I'm shooting an approach and I don't break out, my plan is I'm going to my alternate. I'm not even going to screw with this anymore. Why? Because there's all kinds of pressure on me now because I didn't break out. Well, what if I'd gone a little bit lower? And and then I've got the stress of um, if I try it again, you know, my car, where's my car? Oh, it's not here. Or the patient. Those aren't things you want to think about at this point. Now what you want to think about is I've got enough fuel to go to a place that's got good weather. That's where I'm going. You don't want to pick an alternate that looks no better than the place you just didn't get into. Mm-hmm. Now you got some real stressors on you. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get in? But if you got, you want to make sure you got enough fuel to go someplace where you know you're going to land, even if you got to spend the night there, even if somebody's not going to be happy with you, hey, you'll be happy with you. Yep. I was flying a EC-135 back from Shreveport, Louisiana one night. It was pretty late. It's probably 10 o'clock at night, pitch dark. It's raining. I've got a tech rep with me. So we're flying back IMC. As I get in the terminal environment, I'm checking weather, and weather at Grand Prairie, that's our base here, was like, I don't know, 500-foot ceiling. And it was a hard ceiling. I mean, we were IMC the whole way over. The approach, as I recall at the time, dropped you off at 411 feet, 411. And I'm thinking, for those that don't know the area well, Grand Prairie is about maybe eight or nine miles west of Dallas Executive. Used to be called Redbird, RBD. Redbird has an ILS. So I was flight planned to Grand Prairie. I'm going to Grand Prairie. I'm checking weather at Grand Prairie. I check weather at Redbird. It's the same. And I'm like, in my car, and you know, this is my base. I want to come here. I'm like, screw that. I am not going to shoot the approach into Grand Prairie, miss, go out, then go shoot the approach into Redbird. Because quite honestly, I'm not carrying just, you know, boatloads of fuel. I mean, I've got all I can carry, but... I thought to myself, why do I want to place myself in a position where I have to work very hard when I can just work a little hard and just shoot the ILS into Redbird, park the helicopter, tie it down, rent a car, drive to Grand Prairie and go home? And that's what I did. You know, it's kind of funny, too. Um, I can remember that night. I can remember the tech rep that was with me. He'll, he'll remember as well. I say we broke out at about 300 feet. So 300 feet in a driving rain, we broke out in Redbird. And again, parked the helicopter, all's well, went home. So... You know, the, the, the risk level changed, the weather got worse quicker, and it wasn't worth my, it wasn't worth the angst to try to make my destination because I knew if I missed it, my level of anxiousness oh, goes up. self-induced pressure. Now I got to make this work. Yeah. What does that mean? I got to make, we're, we, we got, we don't, you know. Right. You paint yourself into a corner. Absolutely. And to your point, I, I've got nothing to prove to anybody. Nothing. Nothing. And if someone thinks, oh, my gosh, Bruce, he isn't a very good pilot. Look, he pulled up short, and the weather was, you know, reported 100 feet above his the minimum for the approach. I'm like, well, yep, you're right. <laughs> I pulled up short and parked the helicopter. Or you're en route, and you see that Grand Prairie and Redbird are equally as bad. <laughs> right. And then you're like, where I'm at right now, the weather's pretty Looks good. Looks fine. I think I'm going to spend the night here. Looks fine. Absolutely. I spent the night in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, within 20 minutes by helicopter of my home. I'm like, well, not going to make that tonight. So it is about understanding risk, understanding what you can control and what you can't control, and your body too, because 
I think we've all felt that additional, it's kind of like when you land, you know, I, I joke, you can tell a, an experienced 350 pilot from an inexperienced 350 pilot because the experienced 350 pilot will land the helicopter, literally put it on the surface, and maybe they kind of jostle around a bit on the landing. They bounce a little bit, and it's not just a textbook landing. They just get out and go home. The inexperienced pilot tries it again. So once the first landing didn't go super well, let me tell you, the second one isn't going to either because you become more anxious. You become more tense. You know, know, know thyself, right? And not just thyself, know human behavior. When we're pushed against the wall, it makes everything more difficult. So don't get pushed against the wall. Know your limits. And yeah, your I, limits can change. Absolutely. They, they're not cast in stone right. where, well, it worked for me last time, so I'm just going to try that again. Let right. your limits be what the situation dictates. Absolutely. Look at that risk and say, well, right. I, I'm not the same guy I was or girl yesterday that I am today with this situation. Mm -hmm. So Coming from a person who flies crude, large airplanes and single pilot helicopters, it's, it's, a flu, it's fluid. You have to know the risk. You have to monitor the risk. You have to be aware of the risk. You can't hide from it. You know, you can't. Pretend it dead. You can't pretend the weather isn't getting worse. And and that's another point I want to share with you too. We talked about, um, you know, the risk. You know, in the flight, during the flight, after the flight. How many of the listeners give pie reps? I do often, actually. I do often. I think it's kind of your moral responsibility. I I, I do too. And as uh, as an airline captain. Um, I give icing reports all the time. And we're not that the aircraft that I fly that's the size of a building is like in jeopardy for the ice, but I also fly turboprops. Sure. I fly GA. I fly helicopters. And I know when I'm in the lower altitude structure that these pie reps are worth their weight in gold. But here's one for you. Do you give pie reps when you don't get anything? No, I have to say I probably don't. A no icing or no turbulence pirate is really again it's where it's a gold nugget yeah. for you that somebody's out flying and they had a smooth ride in the clouds mm -hmm. um that yeah. could help you pick a route maybe maybe you're looking at a route and you're getting some pirates that maybe it's a little bit longer but the ride's better mm -hmm. or there's a lot of breaks in the overcast or whatever you're looking for you might find it because someone was thoughtful enough to give you i'll call it an uh not a, a positive pirate. Sure. There's no negativity right. to yeah. it. I love that. I didn't think about that. I have to confess that normally I would, I give one when, you know, it might be light chop, might be even moderate turbulence. It might be moderate rain. It might be reduced visibility, but when it's clear blue in 22, I probably don't enough. So uh, as much as I hate to stop the conversation, we're getting very close to our clearance limit. Before we go, I'd, I'd just like to ask you, Chris, to, to kind of, Give the audience your summation of what it means to effectively detect and manage changes in risk. The first thing I'd ask is if you have the time, go to USHST HSEs. You can just put that in a search bar and it'll take you there and click on it and give it a good read. I think you might find more data than what we could cover in this podcast. Our observation is maybe the, the risk and managing the risk doesn't start anywhere, but maybe at the post-flight where you're setting yourself up for your next flight or whoever operated the aircraft before you, where it's parked and what condition it's in and that you left it in the same or better condition than you found it. 
Then you look at what you're doing in your pre-flight. What are the risks there? You identify them and you mitigate them. If you can't mitigate them, don't fly. Or wait until things change or improve. Have your own risk mitigation plan, and it doesn't need to be the same every time. Change it with what the risk is to match that. Then in-flight. If things aren't going the way you planned or there's encounters that you're not happy with or they're starting to test your ability as what you consider to be safe, maybe you need to land. Maybe you need to turn around and go back. But as Bruce has indicated, you got to have that bow wave in front of you where you've, you've planned some mitigations. If your iPad shut down, what are you going to do? If something caught on fire, where are you going to go? What's your plan? If your plan is only going to materialize when the fire starts, you're probably a little bit behind the power curve there. So think about these things. Chair fly them on those days where you can't fly. Sit in the aircraft if you can. If not, find a nice chair somewhere and run all these things through your mind and what, what you would do and what your response would be. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic summation, Chris. So again, thank you for uh, episode two. I've certainly learned a lot and I think our audience has as well. Bruce, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Until next time, resume own navigation. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.